0: We have on our panel Scott Slatton, the, the Association's <laughs> Director.
1: Thank you. Thank um, you very much.
0: Director of Advocacy and Communications. We have Casey Fields, our Municipal Advocacy Manager, <laughs> Joni Nickel, and Erica Wright, our Legislative and Public Policy advocate. And they are all here to share highlights from the 2022 (coughs) legislative session. Uh, And if you will look in your registration uh, packet, uh, you have an end-of-year report there. And that may be helpful during the session to kind of keep track of things and figure out if there are even other things that you would uh, like to hear about. So now, Casey, take it away.
2: Good afternoon. Thank you all very much for joining us after such a great lunch and an afternoon outside of the hotel. We appreciate you being here for just a little bit um, to hear the updates from the 2022 legislative session. We have, um, as Kathy mentioned in your packet, the year-end report. A lot of the information that we're going to talk about is based on the year-end report. So you can reference that, make notes on that, um, and use that however you want to. I would rather you not fold it up and use it to balance the table where you're sitting. Um, maybe use it for something um, helpful. So, Are I'm going to... Wait a minute. Are Scott? you going
1: you to tell everybody why you're standing and not sitting?
2: I can. Yeah, tell them why you're standing. Okay. So, I'm standing <laughs> up because I have another session immediately following this session that I will have to present and leave to go get ready for the next session. She's
3: leaving us, guys, she's leaving us.
2: Can y'all tell how difficult it is to work with these three
0: people? No, no. Not Erica, not Erica. I'm just kidding,
2: it's a wonderful, um, we have a wonderful team, we get along really, really well as you can see and we absolutely love working together. Um, So let's start this presentation off and let's just look Um, Let's talk a little bit about what the State House looks like right now. Um, After the 2022 session, what are we looking at moving forward, and what on earth has happened? Um, Sometimes you read the news and you think, um, what is going on in Columbia? Um, And we do the same thing. So the House of Representatives, the South Carolina House, was up for re-election this year. House members are up for re-election every two years senators every four. So Senate is not up for re-election, and for another two years. In those two years, they will run on their newly drawn redistrict lines. So you notice that they adopted redistricting plans, and you're aware of that because some of your um, districts and your cities have changed. So we don't have to worry about the Senate right now, other than the fact that because of the passing of Senator Hugh Leatherman from Florence. He was chairman of Senate Finance. Um, A vacancy came up for Senate Finance chairman. In the Senate, the chairmen are moved into that position. They're not elected by the committee members. So on that committee, on the finance committee, the next chairman would be the senior member of the majority party. And that was Senator Harvey Peeler from Gaffney. He became Senate Finance Chairman. There's a rule in the Senate that says you cannot be both President of the Senate and a Chairman of a Standing Committee. So he had to resign as President of the Senate as he was elected by his colleagues to become Finance Chairman. That's been his dream. There he is. And the, the Senators elected from among themselves, Senator Tommy Alexander from Oconee County. That is what the Senate looks like right now. They have a new member, um, Mike Rickenbaugh. He was elected um, in former Senator Leatherman's um, position. So he is the new senator from Florence. And it's the first time that Florence has had a junior senator in what, 40, 40 30, 40 years, yeah, I believe. 40. Um, so that is, that is kind of what the Senate looks like right now. There was some jumbling up of some committee chairmen, but not too many. Um, So, the Senators um, will be coming back on September the 6th. Uh, That is the date that they were given by Senator Alexander. They will return to Columbia for no more than two weeks, I believe they said, to handle any legislation that comes from the House related to the United States Supreme Court overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, The House has promised legislation, the Senate is waiting on that legislation from the House. That is when they'll be back in Columbia. Now let's let's turn and look at the house because that is nuts right now. That is completely different. It's going to feel different. It's going to look different. Um, some good, some bad, um, but just different. So thirteen House members did not seek re-election. Among those thirteen House members, Jay Lucas, who just so happens to be the Speaker of the House, um, Gary Simrel, I'm sorry, Rock Hill. Um, who was the majority leader? He was a senior House member from the city of Rock Hill, um, and many others. Then, in the primaries in June, six House members lost, some very unexpectedly. Um, and that will make a huge impact on the House when we start reorg, which House reorg is usually end of November, beginning of December um so that is going the house is going to look different there are some um there's a riff, i would call it a squabble a dust up in the republican party because some of the seated house members uh, ran campaigns against their colleagues against um, incumbents um, there's going to be some issues with that among the caucus um, There are going to be different committee chairmen Um, Speaker Smith, Speaker Merle Smith from the city of Sumter, he has promised to shake things up a little bit and change around some committee appointments. Uh, Representative Rita Allison from the Upstate, she was the chairwoman, the only female chairwoman in the House of Education and Public Works. She lost her primary. So there's gonna be a new chairman of Education and Public Works. There's already a new chairman of House Ag because the current chairman of House Ag He resigned to become the new majority leader, Davey Hyatt, Representative Davey Hyatt. There will be a new chairman of House Ways and Means. And y'all, House Ways and Means, that's where your money's coming from. Um, There are two representatives right now that are running for that position. And y'all, I think it's safe to say that every day we hear something different about who's got what votes and and who thinks that they're in the lead. Representative Bruce Bannister from Greenville and Representative Bill Herb Kurzman um, from down in Beaufort, Bluffton area. Both of those gentlemen would like to be the new chair of House Ways and Means. So we've we've heard different things. I don't think it's been locked up um, quite yet.
1: And, we, and you'll have the the House Freedom Caucus to have right. to deal with. The leadership will as well.
2: The newly formed. And, y'all, that doesn't even take into account the November elections. Yeah. And we could see more changes in the House after the November elections if um, – People lose their unexpectedly lose their seats there. So we are looking at the new caucus, um, a widening Republican majority in the House, um, still a Republican majority in the Senate. Um, We're looking at the governor's race. They we are looking at um, hot button issues that are going to be in front of the House and Senate in 2023. And they're going to be in front of the Senate, House, and Senate. The House is coming back on August 29th, Joni, and that's yes. what you said. Um, they're coming back on August 29th to begin the process of debating legislation about the, um, the Roe v. Wade, U.S. Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision. Um, they think that it will not take very long, and then they will send a bill to the Senate. Um, that can't be anything but divisive among members because there are so many strong feelings about that issue. Um, so that, that is – I don't know how well that's going to go with our civility campaign um, because there are, there are some senators that promised when they were here in June that he would call out by name anybody that had a public or a private conversation with him of anything related to the, the Dobbs decision bill. He said, I will call your name, I will put your name in the newspaper, and I will tell everybody about anything that anybody says about this bill.
1: Yeah, if anybody attempts to add exceptions uh, to an abortion bill beyond the life of the mother, so rape, incest, if anybody privately or publicly proposes to do that, then he will call them out by name. So that's what he pledged. And And I believe it. He'll do it.
2: I believe him, too. um, what? Go ahead. I believe them too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, this it is. It is a more um, Senator Richard Cash from Anderson. He was he took the floor when they were back in June to handle gubernatorial budget vetoes, and he introduced his bill then. Um, that would it was a complete ban with the exception of life of the mother. Right. What we, we had, South Carolina had, a, and I don't mean to go down this wormhole, but I feel like this will give you a sense of where we are as far as the temperament of our legislature at this point, because there are a lot of other things that are coming, um, but this is just gonna kind of give you an idea you know, of, of where people are. It is such a divisive issue. Um, But he, Senator Cash, introduced a bill that would be a complete and total ban. It would be a ban on out-of-state travel um, by women seeking an abortion. It would be a ban um, everything except um, for life of the mother. What we had, South Carolina was a trigger law state, which the legislature passed back in the regular session. So once it was overturned, we currently have a six-week ban with rape, incest, life of the mother, and fetal anomaly. Um, but they want to take it a, a step further and and do a, a total ban. Which... Yes, there was an
1: expectation whenever they passed the six week ban, the fetal heartbeat bill, that you know that might lay the issue to rest for uh, for people who are uh, pro life. But uh, people like Senator Cash, that's not good enough. They want they want as, as restrictive a bill as restrictive a law as they can possibly get. The problem is is that the culture wars are setting the tone for all of the other discussions and debates that we're having. So, In our case, culture war let them fight it out over the culture war so they're not getting into our business, getting into your business, but at the same time it makes it a whole lot more difficult to push through things that, uh, that you all need.
2: I think that we will take 124 of our buttons to the House and 46 <laughs> of our buttons to the Senate and tell them that if we can do it, join us and you can do it too yeah. with us. And we, um, just like President Pender said, we're gonna lead the way in this charge. So hopefully we'll see cooler heads prevailing in the legislature and I look forward to working with you during the upcoming session. Well, Casey, Scott? before
0: you go, I know go we're gonna jump into a debrief of what's going on with the legislature, but Casey talked about laying out the temperament, right? The temperament at the State House. My last visit to D.C in meeting with our congressional delegation, that's the first thing both Senate staffers and congressional staffers ask. It's what's going on at the State House? Give me a rundown. Did the speaker really resign? Who's going to be the next speaker? Right. And as Casey is sharing with you, our, our DC delegation, many of their staffers reach out as well, wanting to know what the landscape is back here. And I think that's a testament to understanding the temperature at the State House. And being able to yes communicate that to you, but also communicate that back in DC because they're sending a lot of money your way as well. And so we've got you well rounded both from a state and federal position and we'll talk about that later. But everything Casey shared, we've had to share back in DC as well.
1: No.
3: Yeah. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Casey. <laughs> Thanks, Casey.
1: So we're going to get into uh, the items that you can find in your legislative report that's in your year in legislative report that was in your packet that you pick up, picked up today. I'm going to talk first, and we're going to have a little bit of a conversation uh, about the service fees bill. And then uh, Joni is going to talk about budget issues. She's going to turn it over to Erica. I'm going to have to step out, like Casey, uh, a little bit early. So you'll Please forgive me for leaving. Too. Yeah. But these two are more than capable to carry on the conversation. Um, Uh, after I leave. So let's talk about the service fees bill. This is Senate bill. The original bill was Senate Bill 984. And this bill was introduced at the beginning of the session in order to address a Supreme Court ruling that was made last June, a state Supreme Court ruling that was made last June in the case of Burns versus Greenville County. Uh, And for those of you who may not be familiar with that case, It was brought by Representative Mike Burns from Traveler's Rest, uh, Representative at the time Dwight Loftus from Greenville, and Representative Gary Smith from the Golden Strip area in Greenville County against Greenville County and a road fee, a road maintenance fee that the county had put on a number of years ago and then in subsequent years increased that fee. Um, in 1997, uh, well, back in 1992, the General Assembly passed a law that allowed local governments, counties, and municipalities to put on fees for services. Okay, uh, to pay for different things that nece- perhaps uh, property taxes wouldn't be able to cover or didn't fit in the mold of a tax. So, uh, subsequent to that 92 law, cities and counties, in particular counties, started to put on a, a menu of fees for different services, road fees primarily. In 1997, however, the General Assembly came and tweaked that law to say that uh, the a, a fee that was put on had to benefit, ha- had to give the rate payer, the fee payer, a benefit different than a benefit that would be realized by the general public. So uh, if a Uh, Greenville County resident paid their road maintenance fee then uh, under that 1997 statute they had to uh, receive a, a benefit different from me who didn't who someone who did not live in Greenville County okay that's the way the law had been interpreted and applied by counties and cities since 1997 a couple years ago these three House members didn't like the fact that Greenville County had increased that fee and they felt that that in, those increases in that fee over time were violative of the 97 change to that statute so they brought a suit against Greenville County they said that they attempted to settle with Greenville County and have them uh, uh, refund the increases in the fees to the fee payers the county didn't agree so they sued ultimately made it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said yeah uh, that's uh, uh, the the fee payer has to get some sort of benefit that is different than greater than uh, the general public and in sub, and so as a result uh, a number of counties across the state began to uh, repeal their fees if they had them I think Greenville County did that and several others did um, and so they were now left without that revenue for those particular services So our colleagues at the South Carolina Association of Counties uh, worked with legislators to introduce a bill that would essentially put the intent, the original intent, and the original interpretation of that 97 change into the law going forward. So they were successful in doing that by way of Senate Bill 984. Senate Bill 984 passed the Senate it passed the House, but the House of Representatives made changes to it which threw it into what's called a conference committee. So, If, uh, if the Senate and the House passed uh, the same bill but different wording, then they have to put it into a conference committee where the changes get worked out. It went to conference committee, it pa- and then they have to go back, the chambers have to agree to it. The Senate agreed to the conference report, but when it got back to the House, on the very last day of the session, one of the very last acts of an outgoing House member, Representative Jonathan Hill, from Anderson County, he objected to allowing that conference report to be taken up by the House before the end of the session that day so that it could pass into law. So at that point, Senate Bill 984 was dead, completely dead. However, unbeknownst to most of the House, The Senate had amended a a different bill earlier in the day with the language, the clean language of 984, and they had passed that bill out to the House, okay? They bobtailed it, essentially, onto a separate bill, onto a different bill. Comes back over to the House, and the House ultimately, after several procedural votes, and it was very close, finally decided to pass that bill and what it does is as i said put the language back so that the ratepayer has to get a benefit receives a benefit from paying the fee even if the general public receives that benefit also so it essentially puts the intent the original interpretation of the 97 law into current law Uh, the governor struggled uh, with whether or not to sign this bill Uh, He was getting uh, calls and pleas from both sides of the issue. We reached out to the governor's office and asked him and his staff to understand how important it was to cities and towns, uh, and we encouraged him to, to, um, to sign that bill, which he did, I think, on the last day that he was eligible to sign it. It was important to us to support the counties in that effort because, in our view, it wasn't just road fees that were potentially at risk. It was any fee that you, as municipalities, charge. Now there are other parts of the statute where water, sewer, stormwater fees like that are codified. But that one opening, that one little crack to that door to attacking fees of any kind uh, was too much of a risk uh, for us. And so we worked very closely with the county association uh, to to get that bill passed. So. That's in law. The the governor signed it. It was effective upon his signature, so we can now go forth with uh, continuing to charge uh, fees for services uh, that maybe don't necessarily, that aren't codified elsewhere in law. Uh, So uh, talk to your municipal attorney if you have any questions about the fees that you're charging, Uh, but keep in mind when you're putting fees on, they have to be be spent on the, the purpose for which they're being passed, and then you have to provide uh, that, that rate payer, that fee payer, with some sort of a benefit, but you can give them that benefit even if it also benefits the general public. I'm happy to answer questions about this after the session. We'll be around <laughs> later on. So I'm going to turn it over to Joni to talk about the budget, the, yeah. state bu- the biggest state budget we've ever had.
3: The largest one we've ever had. I right. will say that before I start talking money. Yep. Um, Scott made it sound like this was just also calm, this service people, bill. This was the least calm piece of legislation yeah. I've ever seen in what, 13, 14 years. It was a goat rodeo. I got 10,000 steps in, and I don't know what, 45 minutes going back and forth oh, from the House. Well, to the oh, what kind of rodeo? A goat rodeo. Goat. It was a goat rodeo.
1: Listen, I, I will tell you this we had, we had an internal argument about what our approach should be with regard to this bill at the end of the session, Mm -hmm. in terms of whether or not we should continue to support it or whether we should kill it, particularly the original Bill 984, because the House of Representatives had amended the original bill with some very offensive language about how your authority to be able to levy those fees. And so they were offensive to the point to where we considered working actively to kill that bill. We, we ultimately did not, uh, and even though we, our tactics, we disagreed on what our tactics should be, we all won at the end, so uh, we, can, uh, we can be happy about that. And
3: lost five pounds in, in the And
1: Joni lost five pounds.
3: Yeah, so, all right, so money, $38.2 billion this year. Wow, that's a lot of money. Um, this, is, this includes state dollars, federal dollars, this is grant dollars, but 38.2 billion billion, one one of the largest budgets the state of South Carolina has ever seen or passed. And we had some good, the bad, and the ugly. Not a lot of ugly, though, this year, right?
1: It was probably less ugly this year yeah. than it has been in a long time.
3: It was less ugly, but we had some really good things. The local government fund was fully funded. Um, so Act 84, that was passed in 2019, says the General Assembly follows a formula and what this formula does is if the general fund goes up or down five percent so does your local government fund and so you got an additional twelve point five million dollars because they fully funded it at five percent this year.
1: And y'all remember this is the change to the statute that the General Assembly made back in 2019,
3: 2018,
1: 2019, Were something Were you like not that. listening? Yeah I was, oh. yeah, yeah. but. Uh, it, it was It was something that we all agreed to, and they they have pledged to stick to yes. it, uh unlike the old local government fund formula, which they said they would always pay us, but they never did. But Remember never those did. days
3: well, you know there's some accountability now that is yeah. you know actual law that they wrote and passed themselves yeah. so I'm glad they're following that one. Um, And there were some other things in the budget with recurring dollars that you don't really hear a lot about because with the recurring dollars, keep in mind, they don't always have to come back and ask for those dollars again. It's nice sometimes for them to give a report, like the PTSD money. That's recurring dollars. Last year we got $500,000 in recurring dollars for PTSD. $250,000 Two hundred fifty thousand went to SLED. Two hundred fifty thousand went to the firefighter association. But this year they gave us an additional two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that's to be split: one hundred twenty-five thousand for SLED and one hundred twenty-five thousand for your law enforcement or firefighter association. And the reason for this is the firefighter association had so many claims that they were using this money. They needed to increase it, to pay out future claims. So that's great news that we had so many firefighters that felt comfortable enough to come forward to use these funds, but it's also a little sad that we had that many firefighters who were suffering with PTSD. Now, there is still a stigma attached to law enforcement officers, and we are trying to partner with them to work on what kind of campaign we can come up with to help them to see that this is not a bad thing. Mental health needs to be addressed. Go ahead. Well,
1: I was going to say it's a really important that, that this, these PTSD treatment programs got funded on a recurring basis, number one, but number two, if our firefighters and law enforcement officers don't avail themselves of these services and get back to work, there is a, there is a push underway in the General Assembly right now that we, we worked on last, the last two years to allow those first responders to make a worker's comp claim based on a ptsd diagnosis and so the the more we can the more treatment we can get those first responders and get them back to work then the less potential they'll have for or need they'll they'll have they'll less potential they'll need workers comp services going forward but that's the next push uh from from the law enforcement community and from firefighters is to get that ptsd diagnosis uh compensable under workers comp which will be potentially very expensive, very So, expensive. Uh, but, but keep that in mind. Encourage your police chiefs, fire chiefs to make sure that their folks are going and getting these services if they need them.
3: Well, and to that extent, so we also had in the budget under recurring dollars is the $3.5 million that went towards the Firefighter Cancer Fund. Um, this was a piece of legislation that passed in 2020, but it was unfunded, it was one of those things, hey, let's go ahead and pass the legislation, we'll find the money the next year. Well, they found it this year, and they found it last year, so they funded that again. Um, we don't have a report on how many firefighters are using this firefighter cancer fund because they just started issuing um, the data back in January. So hopefully by the end of the year, if you call me, I'll, I'll be able to, to shoot you some information to show you how that, that, those resources are being used. Um, in the budget also, we had $4 million in non-recurring dollars added to um, advertisement and tourism. Um, again, this is non-recurring, so we will not see that again next year unless someone puts that back in there. We had $2 million um, towards the Rural Stabilization Fund. Now this is recurring dollars. Last year they had $10 million, so that puts a total of $12 million in the Rural Stabilization Fund. So let me explain what that is. So I know Scott, he was about to say, Mm -hmm. let's talk about it. No, keep going. All right. (laughs) So the Rural Stabilization Fund is based on the 2020 census. So if a city or or county, excuse me, if a county's population did not increase by, what, 15,000? I believe that's right. 15,000, then you are eligible, your county is eligible for these funds. Well, we had so many counties that saw... A, such a small increase, they had to increase those funds, so they gave it additional twelve million because they were going to
1: the counties that lost population were going to take a hit to their local government funds uh, the, uh, because the local government fund is determined in, in part on population, so uh, the general assembly needed to help those out that were going to they were going to lose those funds so yeah. in turn that helps hopefully that helps you. And uh, in, in your relationship with your county, so that they're not necessarily looking to hit you up for extra charges like jail fees or something like that, if they're if they're not already if they if you're not already being asked to pay that.
3: Well, and these funds are not something that they apply for, so they already know the statehouse knows that they did not meet the criteria, or they met the criteria, and if they met it, then they just send them the money. Um, kind of like you receive when you receive your local government fund. It was, now let's talk about some of the ugly stuff in the budget. Oh, sure. Okay. All right. So 18.1% yeah. PIVA health care insurance. Did everyone raise your hand if you uh, received that letter? Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a bad one. Um, I know that no one looked forward to uh, having to do their budget based on an 18.1% increase because the last three years you haven't really seen an increase. Um, we spoke to PIVA and said, what happened? Well, COVID happened and so they said this based on what their people were telling them they had the increase was the increase well the state ate the 112 million dollars that it was going to cost all state employees to have that 18.1 percent increase and I said well can you eat some of that for us and they politely said no yeah. um, so, but we tried
1: yeah people th- thought perhaps they were doing us a favor by not passing on incremental increases over the last three budget years, uh, and so, so they made it all up this year. Yeah. Um, don't know, you know. I don't know if, if, if it would have helped you in your budgets if you'd been able to pay more incrementally, but certainly an 18.1% hit all at once is a, a pretty big number.
3: Well, and when I say we went to bat for you guys, we really yeah. did. Um, to the tune of Merle Smith, before he was named speaker, said during a Ways and Means yeah. Committee hearing, well, if you don't like it, change insurance carriers.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, and he also said that he'd been hearing from plenty of you all about about this increase, and he also was quoted as saying something to the effect of "Welcome to our world." Or, or I mean, they had the hundred twelve million dollars to cover theirs. I don't know if y'all had the however many millions, hundreds of millions, it was going to take to cover yours. So,
3: yeah, so that was one of the the ugliest parts of the budget this year. Um, but we did have. Some other, some other good stuff in there, um, the law enforcement officer, it's so a governor's law enforcement officer award. This was brand new in the budget. It's a $10,000 award. Um, it goes to a state law enforcement officer. One also goes to a county, and one goes to a municipal officer. Um, there's a board. You submit your recommendations. The board approves it and then they submit their recommendations to the governor. It's my understanding since it's called the governor's award, he's the one that does the the final say. I will say that the $10,000 award that each of them receive is not subject to state income tax. So they get the full $10,000. So this is great for our law enforcement officers. Um, They also gave us $20 million in the budget. It's non-recurring dollars, but this pays for body cams, this pays for vests, because not all police officers have their own body cameras or their own vests. And Erica is happy to kind of segue into the law enforcement reform, and how, how is this going to affect the people who already apply for these grants, Erica? I know you've spoken to DPS and what this means for them moving forward.
0: I have, and let me start with a conversation. I received a call earlier this year from Representative Chris Wooten, and he is all things law enforcement reform. He's a former law enforcement officer, and he was not happy with local law enforcement agencies because he had just learned that there are many local law enforcement agencies that do not either have uh, bulletproof vests or do not have enough. And so consequently, during his quick tour throughout uh, law enforcement agencies in his district, He learned that many are having to share vests. These vests have to be fitted for one person. And so it's very difficult when you have one person who's one size gets off from a shift and hands his vest to somebody else of a different size. And that's what's happening now. Um, So we took a hit from a legislator when he called. So we are tracking in conversations with the Department of Public Safety, which will administer these grants. I will encourage everyone in this room to start having conversations now with your police chiefs to make sure that you're not one of the ones that does not have the ability to outfit all of your officers with their own bulletproof vests. And that keeps us out of trouble when we get those calls from law enforcement officers because he's an ally of the municipal association and so when he called a little perturbed, A, we understood why, and B, we want to make sure that we don't get that call again. And when I talk to him next, I want to be able to say, that's no longer the case. Here's what we're doing. And so let's keep the law enforcement theme. Y'all know I work on all things law enforcement related, and so we did have a pretty big bill that passed and was signed into law. This is important because this goes into effect January one. And this, many of you have already heard about it, but we call it the Law Enforcement Betterment Bill. How many of you were at Hometown Legislative Action Day in February? So you heard me talk about this bill. We had a panel of legislators, and we had three House members, including Representative Wooten, and they were all pressuring the one senator to pass that bill. Well, he listened. That was the Senate majority leader, and we now have law enforcement reform in the state. Now, what does that look like for you? Number one on the list, officers that are not certified are no longer able to police by themselves. That is now statute. So previously, and this pertains to our smaller rural communities, they would hire a law enforcement officer, give them a gun, and allow them to go out and to police. That is now illegal. That cannot happen. Number two, misconduct that definition has been expanded. So now the failure to intervene by a law enforcement officer is qualified and classified as misconduct. That's effective immediately now. If an officer fails to intervene or fails to report even, that's considered misconduct. Probably the greatest part of this bill and what we're still tracking now is this bill tasked the Law Enforcement Training Council to promulgate minimum standards that every agency in our state has to follow. And there are nine areas to this. So every agency has to follow specific standards and guidelines on hiring and firing, on chokeholds, on no-knock warrants. You can kind of hear where this is stemming from. These uh, minimum standards have to be in place by January 1st. Now, there's a hiccup here because the Law Enforcement Training Council is still trying to figure out what these minimum standards should look like. There was a big meeting at the Criminal Justice Academy probably last month. I was there. And there's differences of opinions on how deep these standards need to be. Do they hand you a standard already written and say your agency needs to follow this, or do they just give you key points that needs to be included in your policy and then let you flesh it out from there? That's still a question mark. So, we're staying engaged with the process, and we'll let you know as soon as we know what those standards will look like. Also, this bill stands up a compliance division. So, this compliance division will inspect every law enforcement agency within our state every three years to ensure that, A, you have those policies in place, and B, that you are following them. If they find that an agency is out of compliance, they will find that agency $1,000 per day until that agency is in compliance with what has been passed. So this is very important that we stay engaged as soon as we know what those minimum standards are, that you have those conversations with your police chiefs so that there are no silos happening in local government because that's a pretty big hit, that $1,000 per day. So that was a big one. Um, American Rescue Plan, I'm going to kind of segue over into that. ARP, I feel like I'm the ARP lady here. You are the ARP lady. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I said I'm gonna get an ARP tat when all this is over. But I'm lying. But the number one question that I'm getting from you, and then we'll talk about what the state is doing. When will I get my second tranche? So many of you represent NEUs, non-entitlement units of local government. You will get your second tranche in the same exact manner that you received your first. If you wanna know the exact date, that the state will release it, please shoot me an email and I can look it up and get that to you. If something has changed and you need it in a different, some of y'all were finding your money in like parts and rec budgets or accounts, if you need to change, please let me know. As of right now, per the state, there's nothing that you need to do, just wait until that date and your money will be in your account. Now, for the $2.5 billion that the state has received, they have allocated about 80% of that, and I'm sure all of you have followed that. Department of Transportation received a large allocation for an infrastructure acceleration account. Uh, The Office of Regulatory Staff has received 400 million to build out broadband throughout the state. The Municipal Association has a seat on that broadband build out task force. So we're working with your cities and towns to as this is being built out so that you're not caught unawares of, with what's happening with your right-of-ways and things like that. And then there's the Rural Infrastructure Authority that received $900 million, $800 million of which will be released to you all in the form of competitive grants that you will be able to apply for using your local ARP dollars as a match. So if you have not been engaged with the Rural Infrastructure Authority, I encourage you to do so. They had a big unveiling of the South Carolina Infrastructure Improvement Program, and that's the umbrella title for these three competitive grant programs. And this is for you to be able to address water, wastewater and stormwater projects within your municipality. I see a lot of nodding heads. Now here's the deal. They already had the big, Uh, webinar on how to engage with these funds, how you can apply for these funds. They have also partnered with the Municipal Association uh, in a series of regional meetings. So there's four. Our field service managers are attending each of those meetings. Uh, Has anyone gone to the first one? Okay, so someone has been there. If you were on that webinar, these meetings are completely different. So just to give you an idea of why it may be beneficial, if you want to use your ARP dollars to apply for these grants to address water, stormwater, wastewater, in your city or town, I would highly encourage you to go because the first 10 minutes is going to be an overview of the webinar, right? overview of the program. From there, there's going to be a Q&A session. We didn't get that in the webinar. After that, there's going to be technical assistance where RIA staff will be on hand, pulling cities and towns into a corner, into an office, and walk you through the grant program, walk you through what you need to do to apply, so there's hands-on assistance to ensure that you have a good chance of getting these dollars, because it is competitive. They are competitive grant programs. Please keep me posted as you're navigating this. I want to ensure that everyone is as knowledgeable as they can be Once that application opens in September, we're on a short time frame. ARP dollars have to be spent by 2026. I just want to make sure that all cities and towns understand how to navigate this infrastructure improvement program using your ARP dollars. All cities and towns, specifically small rural communities, that's important that you're able to navigate that grant writing process because it's new for many and so that's where we are now um mayor tecklenburg mentioned the bipartisan infrastructure deal that is a massive piece of legislation and it's all competitive grant programs and mayor tech you mentioned involving your congressional delegation in march sitting across from senator graham's staff uh, scott graber he asked us if anyone from south carolina applies for an infrastructure grant please let us know so that our staff can get behind it and push to make sure that those dollars come to South Carolina. So we are now, we've already updated our website, but we're gonna spend the rest of the year educating you on what grant programs are available through the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Many of those funding opportunities have not been announced yet, so you haven't missed anything. But we're gonna, it's a lot to digest, and so we're gonna take our time just like we did with the American Rescue Plan to make sure that you have what you need to compete because you're not just competing within the state, but you're competing with 19,000 local governments across the U.S. So it's important that you can navigate that bipartisan infrastructure deal and bring the money to South Carolina, so. I'll stop, and I'm available if anyone has questions. Erica, um, and we can take
3: questions afterwards. For the sake of time, I think we only have about three minutes left. I will close up by saying I get a lot of phone calls, and everyone please write this proviso number down, 108.18. This is the return to work without a cap proviso. And I'm going to explain this to you. So if you have someone who retired from the South Carolina Retirement System or the PORS, they are eligible to return to work without a cap, earning, earnings cap, as long as they've had a 12-month break in service. So since this was a proviso, this is only good for a year. So what does that mean if you contract with someone and they come back, what happens to them next year? Well, next year there will be an earnings cap unless the General Assembly adopts another proviso or permanent law. Um, is taking place. Now, we did testify in support of this legislation. Actually, we went a step further and said, can you please not do a 12-month break in service? We would appreciate a critical need, because the General Assembly did a critical need for teachers, um, and we were hopeful that they would do that for us, but they did not. But they did issue this proviso. This is an important proviso. This is a very beneficial proviso for you all, but again, it expires next year unless something happens. And and Erica, I know you wanted to say this too, we just want to thank you all for always answering our phone calls, our text messages when we are doing laps back and forth between the House side and the Senate side and things are blowing up in our face and we need you guys. You are always there and we really do appreciate that. We appreciate you reaching out to your House members and your Senators on our behalf. So thank you for helping us do our job and making it easier. And, and just thank you for, for what you do for your communities. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank
0: you.